You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from John 20, beginning in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, When I was a kid, I remember having this sort of low-grade anxiety about sleeping in. And even as a teenager, I found that it was actually pretty difficult to sleep in. Even staying at friends' houses, I remember I would be the first one up, just like hanging out with their parents in the kitchen until everyone else woke up. And it, it wasn't until later in life that I realized that there was this sort of deep fear about missing out on something. Now, what that was, I wasn't exactly sure. Nothing really ever important happened that justified this for me. It was just the sort of like sense that I needed to be in the right place at the right time or I was going to miss something life-changing. Like that scene from The Incredibles where Mr. Incredibles had a hard day at work and he gets out of his tiny little car and he slams the door and he turns and sees a little neighbor boy and he's like, what are you waiting for? He's like, I don't know, something amazing, I guess. And the funny thing is that we carry that sense into our adult years as well. But what we see here in John 20 is that a life-changing encounter isn't based on being in the right place at the right time or having the right things in our lives at place as if we are like primed and ready for that important thing No, what we see here in John 20 is that a life-changing encounter is based on Jesus coming to us and meeting us exactly where we are to draw us out and into his newness. Those who do experience Jesus and those who experience all that Jesus offers through faith in him will experience him because he is willing And he is able to overcome every obstacle that stands in the way, whether it's practical like we see here with walls and locked doors, 
or whether it's emotional like fear and apprehension or whether it's even spiritual like doubt and unbelief, nothing can stop Jesus from getting to us. We encounter Jesus because Jesus relentlessly pursues his people. And the good news that we see here is that his ability to meet us is always going to be greater than our ability to miss him. Rest. Relax. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. We find the disciples here on the evening of the resurrection. Kind of an important day. Some significant things may have happened on this day. This is a day that should be marked with joy and enthusiasm, but immediately we discover that there is something not right here. There is a disconnect between what Jesus has just accomplished and how his disciples are immediately responding. They are fearful, they are gathered behind locked doors, they are shut in and they are afraid of the religious authorities. And yet in this beautiful scene, we're told in verse 19 that Jesus came and stood among them. How he got there, we don't know. It's a bit of a mystery. And he said to them, peace be with you. You see, Jesus rises above these significant barriers and stands among them. In fact, some translations read that he stood right in the middle of them. Jesus does not belong on the fringe of your life. And Jesus definitely does not belong outside some wall and locked door, no matter how many obstacles exist. But the risen Jesus is willing to stand right in the middle of all of our situations of fear and doubt and whatever else gets in the way in order to bring us into an experience of his peace. Jesus is like good like that. And there are three distinct features about this encounter with Jesus that I want us to note. This is a very familiar passage. But I want us to note like three features of this encounter with Jesus. The first of which is this, the wounds of Jesus. Look at me in verse 20. When he had said this, peace be with you, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So the primary way that Jesus identifies him, this is his grand resurrection unveiling. This is the first time that he's seen his disciples since he rose, the way that he identifies himself is by highlighting his scars on his side and his hands. And what this shows us is that encountering Jesus, we encounter him through his wounds. Unlike anything we'd expect from a leader today, unlike anything we would be willing to do, Jesus allows his scars to serve as his credentials. This is the proof, he says, that I am the risen Son of God. Say you were in an interview and you were asked, hey, can you tell me about yourself? Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Every single one of us is going to lead with all of our strengths and all of our best features. We're going to let them see all of our highlight reels. Well, here's where I went to school and here was my GPA and this is my, the grad program I was a part of and these are the important accomplishments that I was a part of and you know I've got this downside I guess you could say I'm a little bit too driven you know and like but to the same question 
Jesus simply shows his scars. What we tend to hide, Jesus highlights. This is who I am. This is how you will see what heaven is about. This is the proof of my love. You, you want to know who I am? You want to know what I'm about? Familiarize yourself with my wounds. A poet uh, during World War I wrote these words. If we've never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of scars. The heavens frighten us, they're too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we claim thy grace. The other gods were strong, but thou were weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. The risen Lord, we're told here, is a wounded healer. And this left quite the impression on these first disciples. In fact, the apostle Peter later in his life would write in 1 Peter chapter 2, he himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then quoting Isaiah, he said, by his what? Wounds, you have been healed. To our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. Reverend Greg Boyle uh, shared the story of one of the young men that came through uh, their gang rehabilitation program in Los Angeles. And he shared the story about this young man who had been beat and whipped every single day of his childhood. His body was so bloody that when he went to school, he would have to wear three t-shirts to cover up the blood from seeping through even into the summer, and the kids would make fun of him. They, like, what are you doing? It's 100 degrees. Why do you have three t-shirts on, man? And he said that he lived well into his adult years wearing three shirts, concealing his scars, ashamed of them, until he said, then I learned to welcome my wounds. And the realization that he had was this, how can I help heal the wounded if I'm not willing to welcome my own wounds. We enter into the kingdom of God broken, weak, wounded. That seems to be the prerequisite for getting in, by the way. Through relationship with Jesus, we are healed and we're restored. In fact, the apostle Paul would say that we are new creations in Jesus Christ. And while Jesus does heal us, he does not erase our scars. Isn't that interesting? The risen Jesus with perfected body, it doesn't get more perfect than this, still bears his scars. What does that say to our cosmetic obsessed culture, by the way? And those who are raised with him by faith still have their scars as well, whether they're physical or they're emotional or they're spiritual, or they're 
relational. Why? Why do the scars sort of pass through that process of restoration? And I believe the answer is this. It's because as John shows us, scars are the compelling marks of beauty. Scars are what provide opportunities for joy and gladness and assurance in the lives of the people around us. In the kingdom of God, wounds are our testimony. They they tell the world around us the story of Jesus' resurrection power and his ability to transform our lives. For the believer, you are a living, breathing, walking testimony of God's healing power that Christ is risen to new life, scars and all. Today, we are, people are not able to touch the hands and the side of Jesus like these first disciples were offered. But I want you to think about this. The church is called the body for a reason. And what that means is that we can help others encounter the risen Jesus through our unveiled wounds. By saying, look at what Jesus has done in my life And look what he's capable of doing in your life as well. How do we encounter the risen Christ? It's through his wounds. Second distinct feature of encountering Jesus that we see here is the wind of the Spirit. The wind of the Spirit. I love this because it it sort of beckons the charismatic portions of my upbringing in life. Now that locked door that John mentions twice, by the way, is a very important note because it symbolizes not just the threat that is being kept out, that's why we lock doors, to like keep scary things out, but more alarming, it symbolizes the message of hope that now is being kept in. These are the ones who have been commissioned by Jesus to go proclaim the gospel to the nations, and yet here they are, trapped in their fear. We see not just the threat that the church is facing from the outside in this moment, but the significant threat to the advancement of the gospel. And alone, they are incapacitated, they are paralyzed with fear and doubts, they are absolutely spiritually powerless. And yet after this encounter with Jesus, something shifts. In fact, if you read on past the book of John into the book of Acts, it shows us that they became bold and they became empowered. These are the very ones who fled from Jesus during his arrest. They denied knowing Jesus during his trial. They kept their distance during Jesus' crucifixion. And now they are in a locked up room on the day of his resurrection, afraid of death. And yet in just a matter of days, Just a matter of days, these very same disciples are out preaching the gospel, willing to be arrested, taking a beating with courage. They're standing up to the very same authorities that they're afraid of on this day, and they are actually celebrating being mistreated for Jesus, willing to die for him. Kind of a big shift has happened. What happens? And I believe that there's no other explanation for this change other than what we see demonstrated here. The wind of the Spirit has moved among them. Look at me again in verses 21 through 23. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, 
he what? He breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So there is, I have to mention, just a little bit of debate around this passage, whether or not the apostles received the Holy Spirit before everyone else on the day of Pentecost that we read about in Acts chapter 2, or maybe they received a sort of taste of what was to come, like this was the breath, Pentecost was like the wind. Is it symbolic? Is it more? Is it less? We don't know. But for us, what does matter, and what we do know this side of Pentecost, is that the Spirit has been given. And for those who are united with Jesus Christ through faith, we have received the Holy Spirit in full measure. And the Holy Spirit is how we now encounter Jesus and all of the benefits of his life and his power. And what seems to be happening here is that Jesus is giving this sort of visual, practical demonstration of what would come weeks later on the day of Pentecost, where we read that this room that they're gathered in was filled with the sound of a mighty rushing wind. What's the demonstration? He breathes on them. No, I have to mention, it's just so obscure. <laughs> hey guys, I'm risen from the grave. Let me breathe on you. <sighs> what is going on here? <laughs> well, there's a few things. Let's do a little bit of theological, biblical work here. There's a connection between the word spirit and the words breath and wind. In fact, in the original language of the New Testament, they are all the same word. Numa, the breath, the wind, the spirit. Now, if you're inclined to think of the Holy Spirit, which I understand is maybe it's sometimes easy for this, it's easy for this to happen, but if you're inclined to think of the spirit as this sort of impersonal force that sort of just kind of blows through the universe simply as wind then I want you to pay attention to another detail here. It's that Jesus breathes on them. And what Jesus is demonstrating in this moment is intimacy. You know when someone has gotten awfully close to you, like in your personal bubble, when you can feel their breath on you. You have to be so close to feel someone's breath. Often it's not welcomed. This is a welcomed thing. And because of this, what he's showing is that the Spirit, who is described as the wind, is also the personal presence of God with us. The Spirit is how we are intimate with Jesus. The Spirit is how God is felt and experienced as close in our lives. But also as this is happening to these original disciples who are Jewish, by the way, this would have reminded them of another time when God breathed on something. It turns out this is not just a random thing. This has happened before. And it's recorded for us in scripture. In fact, it points all the way back to the creation account in Genesis chapter two, where we read this. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and what? Breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became 
a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. So this is an interesting connection here. That just as God had breathed his life into Adam at creation and made him a living being through that breath, and then placed him in the garden to be his representative to the world, what this is demonstrating here is that Jesus also now breathes his spirit into us, bringing new life. And then with that new life, he places us into the world as his representative. Where Adam failed, Jesus prevailed, and now humanity is given the best second chance that you could ever imagine with the power of the Holy Spirit. And like in the garden, we are given life and then sent out to cultivate and to expand it by offering a message of full and complete forgiveness for all who would trust in Jesus Christ. How do we encounter the risen Jesus through the wind of the Spirit? Let's look finally at this distinct feature of the words of life. Look with me again verses, uh, in verses 24 through 29. It's a long section, but I want to read it again. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. It's not going to happen. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, all right, man, here's your chance. Put your finger here. And see my hands, and put your hand, uh, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. Now there's something extremely compelling about this story. Jesus knows exactly what Thomas needs in order to believe. And he hears Thomas's faith struggle. Jesus wasn't present the first time that Thomas shows up, and yet he knows exactly what Thomas longs for. And he comes through to reveal himself to him. But on the other hand, what Thomas experiences, we have to admit, is extremely unique. We cannot expect the same experience in our life. We can't expect to have anyone else's experience for that matter. And it's easy to read this passage, I know, I read this passage and I'm thinking, that must be nice. That's great for Thomas. I wish Jesus did that in my life. I wish Jesus would just show up like this and help me overcome my doubts so that I can truly believe. But I think that there are two things to pay attention to here. The first is surprising. The first is that there's actually no indication that Thomas actually placed his hand in his scars. There's nothing, John is detailed here too, by the way. He mentions things like locked doors twice, but there's no detail here that Thomas actually responded and reached out his hand. In fact, what we see here is that he hears Jesus' voice and his invitation, 
And then immediately he confesses that Jesus is Lord and God. What he thought he needed in order to believe wasn't actually what led to faith. I need this in order to believe in Jesus. Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't. Secondly, Jesus says that there's actually greater blessing. We think that this is blessed. Jesus says, no, actually, there's greater blessing for those who do not see me and, yes, and yet believe. Yes, you know, we, we think Thomas is blessed, you know, for this encounter that he experiences. But Jesus says, no, actually, those who encounter me through my word, those are the blessed ones. You know what that means for us today? We are the blessed ones. Thomas ain't got nothing on us. I love the woo. <laughs> woo for the word. Those who have not seen and yet believe, they experience the greater benefit of God's presence. Let's be honest, that's a tough pill to swallow. That's great in theory. Difficult in practice. Augustine once said, I believe in order to perceive. In other words, I believe in order to see and experience. We live in a world that says the opposite, and we often make demands that sound very the opposite of that. I have to see it in order to believe it. And what the scriptures encourage us to do is actually we believe it in order to see and experience it in our lives. We believe that Christ is the risen son in order to see and experience him at work in our lives. And John tells us how we can believe and therefore be considered the blessed ones today. It goes on to say in verses 30 through 31, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What this tells us is what is written in the scriptures is completely sufficient to supply you with strong and bold and courageous and persevering faith. Sufficient. All of the truth and all of the proof that is necessary for salvation and spiritual life and vitality is found in the scriptures. The word of God has the power to awaken new faith and revive the faith of those who have already been awakened. And what that means is that when you too are struggling to experience Jesus in your life, and when you're like Thomas, you're struggling with your doubts, you're struggling with unbelief, maybe you're looking for a sign from heaven, God, just show me something, show me that you're real. Maybe you're waiting for that spiritual breakthrough, I'm in this dry, desert, wilderness moment, I haven't heard your voice, I haven't seen you at work in my life. Maybe you're asking God to speak, maybe you're asking God to appear in your life. Remember that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And John gives you and me a beautiful promise if we're willing to receive it today. That these words are written for you. 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you too may have life in his name. My prayer for us this week, my prayer for you, is that you would discover the blessing of believing through God's word and that you too would encounter the risen Jesus where he has told you, you will encounter him in his faithful, sufficient, lasting, abiding word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son.